Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast and its questions and answers. My team has dredged up some. That I have never seen before, but something different this time. They tell me they're going to get me some that I've already answered for our patrons. I always answer the patron questions immediately, and there's some pretty good ones. So the team went into Patreon and found some. So I get to uh, readdress those for the rest of you. So our first question of the day is from Jeff. Jeff asks, if recoil, is recoil impacted by chamber working pressure? Okay. Chamber pressure is the pressure that develops inside the chamber of your rifle when your cartridge goes off. And it peaks while the powder is pretty much still in the chamber. It's not like it goes way down the barrel. Even though there's powder burning on the way down the barrel, the pressure peaks in the chamber and every cartridge is given a pressure limit or a maximum average chamber pressure setting by SAMI, the um, industry's organ that establishes all these standards, uh, Sporting Arms and Ammunition Manufacturers Institute so that everyone can build the ammunition to the right levels of pressure for the right rifles and et cetera, et cetera. So something doesn't go kablooey inadvertently. So working pressure is established at a certain level, which each cartridge, some of them are as low as 20,000 PSI, some are as high as 65,000 PSI. And the new one coming out, the 277 Fury, is allowed 80,000 PSI of pressure. That is a lot. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. But does that increase in pressure then increase your recoil? Yes, as part of this whole program of recoil, which is launching something that direction creates an equal and opposite reaction in the other direction, obviously. So if you're throwing a 500-pound weight that way, it takes a lot of energy and you've got action pushing back this way. So with a bullet, it's the combination of its mass plus the powder's mass. Even though powder turns into a gas, that's still weight, its mass, and it's being pushed out of the barrel. So something is going to be pushing back at you. Well, the same amount of energy going out the barrel is coming back at you. So weight of the bullet, weight of the powder, and the muzzle velocity. And that's where the chamber pressure comes in. The higher your chamber pressure, usually the higher your muzzle velocity. And that is factored in because if the blowing it down range at a certain velocity, obviously, if you're only throwing it 
1,000 feet per second versus 3,000 feet per second. The 3,000 foot per second rifle is going to kick more than the 1,000. So, Jeffrey, everything being equal, if you crank your chamber pressure up, you're going to feel more recoil. So, let's say you're loading a 30-06 or 308 Winchester, and you have what's called a light load with not a lot of powder in it, and you're only driving that bullet at about 2,000 feet per second. Very little recoil, whatever the weight of the bullet. But as you increase your powder and increase your chamber pressure and your velocity, then the recoil increases. How much? I don't know. I don't know how to figure that one out. I'm sure somebody out there does because we've got a lot of of math geniuses out in the world and I'm not one of them, but definitely the chamber pressure going up is going to increase your recoil. All right, this is, oh, here's one of our patrons. This is Tom. I recently inherited a Western Auto Revelation Model 200-3030 Winchester. I'll bet not a lot of us have heard of that one. He inherited it when his father-in-law passed away. So, can I provide any information on that rifle? Is it safe to shoot, or should he mount it in his den? (laughs) And I remember telling Tom, don't mount this in your den because it's a perfectly functional rifle. This uh, Western Auto Revelation rifle was a branded Marlin. Marlin was hired by Western Auto, and I think it was out of Kansas City, as one of these auto, not an auto car dealership, but parts. Um, different things like wiper blades, everything from that up to probably, I don't know, replacement engines. I'm not sure what they sold, but Western Auto has had a series of stores around the country that sold things, including guns and ammunition, kind of like a hardware store. So they would hire Marlin to build them a rifle with their branded name on it. So Marlin would just stamp out another 336 lever action, 3030 Marlin rifle. But instead of saying Marlin on it, it said Western Auto Revelation. Gave it a model number and everything else. Now, I would imagine that um, they cut some corners to lower the price and made it a little extra special. Or maybe they went the opposite direction and made an extra fancy one. Whatever they would really order, I suppose. But I would guess they would go with a birch stock rather than walnut and perfectly functional, just not quite as fancy. And maybe they would use a little bit, I don't know, something different. But it was essentially a Marlin 336 lever action rifle. So even though it sounds kind of odd to have a Western auto rifle, there's nothing junky about it. And it's as long as it's functional, it's not broken in any way. The smart thing, of course, is to go to a gunsmith if you have any reservations about things not working right and have him check it out. But if it's in good shape, it hasn't been abused, it should be just fine. They were made... I think in the 50s, definitely the 60s. In the 1960s, things like that were going on. I think Sears had a line of firearms, uh, the Western Auto. What's another one? I think Montgomery Ward's department stores had guns made and branded with their names on it and different things. So it's pretty common back in the middle of the 20th century to have those. And you can get a good functional rifle that just doesn't have the cachet about it if it were called Marlin or Winchester or whoever made it. Some of the other brands that made guns for Western Auto were Savage and High Standard. You might not have heard of High Standard, but they made quite a few uh, firearms back in the 50s and 60s. All right. Yeah, have fun with that one, Tom. I think your that rifle's going to work just fine for you. This is Jason. Oh, another patron. Good. Jason from Patreon asks, I'm trying to get my hands on a Ruger number 1. Any suggestions on an unusual caliber for that rifle? Aha. This is kind of a collector's game. There are a lot of folks who love that 
Ruger number one. That is a falling block single shot rifle. Uh, extremely strong and powerful. And because it's a falling block, you don't have a long action. With a bolt action rifle or a lever, you've got to move the the bolt quite a ways to cycle another round out of the magazine. So you're going to have two and a half to three and a half inches of extra length on that. With a falling block single shot, the breech, the end of the barrel is right here. And instead of moving something behind it to put a new round in, you open the lever and a steel block drops down to show the uh, chamber opens right like that. So the block drops down, which means you don't need extra length. And you can shorten your overall rifle length by that two to three inches. And you end up with a pretty handy little short rifle. That means you've got extra inches to add barrel to it and increase your velocity. You know, a lot of folks say, gee, should I get a 22-inch barrel or is that going to cost me some velocity with this Magnum? Nah, you probably want a 24-inch barrel in your 7-rem mag or 300-win mag. Well, then I got a big long rifle. And really what you ought to have is a 26-inch barrel because then you can really maximize the velocity out of that cartridge. Oh, my goodness. Now your rifle's getting to be like a small howitzer. Well, with the Ruger number one or any of these falling blocks, because you don't have that extra long action on there, you can build that into the barrel and still have a pretty compact rifle. So they're real popular for folks who understand one shot, one kill. Take your time, do it right. You really only need one shot. So if you are of that mindset, you would probably love a Ruger number one. Now, if you're a collector, you want to get all the oddball cartridges, and they made a lot of them. 220 Swift, 22 250, they would get down into the, I think they had 218B in it at one time. And every year that seemed like they would chamber that rifle for another unusual cartridge or not extremely popular cartridge, and all the collectors would buy one and add to their collection. And then every once in a while, those will pop up on the used market. So, yeah, it. Pretty much, Jason, any cartridge that you've heard of that you don't see chambered very often that you think would be an oddball, look around for it. Gun broker, various gun stores and shops that sell used stuff, uh, you you can find things. Um, I, I really don't know what you want. I would, gosh, I would be looking for what? 300 H&H would be kind of fun. Because after the 300 Win Mag came on the scene, that 300 H&H kind of fell by the wayside. But a lot of folks you have who absolutely love it. And that would be a fun one to have in a single single shot like that. Okay, that was a good one. Hey, good luck on that, Jason. Let me know when you find the oddball, number one. Let me know what it is. Send me a picture of it. Maybe we'll do a little report on it. See what kind of an oddball you can come up with. Sounds like a fun project. All right. This is a question from Anonymous, and it is the 375 Ruger. Is the 375 Ruger a good choice for an African hunting trip? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Most of us think Africa, 375 H&H, that's the standard. That is the one cartridge to take to Africa. If you have any qualms about something, you just go with that one. The old standard. But this is not an H&H. This is the Ruger. What's the difference? The Ruger is a shorter cartridge. The H&H is a full-length Magnum cartridge. And the Ruger is a 30-06 length, standard length action cartridge. But it's fatter. The H&H uh, &H Magnum, of course, has the belt on it. And then under the belt in the regular taper of the body and all, I think you're down to about 
0.513 inches in diameter. But so what Ruger has done is use the full diameter for the case without the belt. So the width of the belt is actually the outside wall of the entire case. And then you end up with more powder capacity in that shorter case. So their idea was, let's see if we can get 375 H&H performance out of a shorter, handier case. So your rifle is a little bit shorter, a little bit lighter, et cetera, et cetera. The uh, actual ballistic performance, just about spot on as the 375 H&H. I think they're almost identical within at most 100 feet per second, one way or another, depending on your loads and powders and all the rest of it. So it certainly has what you need for an African safari. One thing you might want to check, though, are the local laws, because some of these countries specify that you have to have at least a 375 H&H Magnum or larger cartridge for buffalo hunting different dangerous game hunting. That's kind of a minimum. And they might not know and or recognize the 375 Ruger. I don't know, but, you know, it's definitely a possibility. You show up with it, and even though it does the same thing as the H&H, they don't know it. And since it doesn't have an HH on the barrel, it has a Ruger instead, you might not get to use it. I doubt that, but it's definitely a possibility. So ask your guide outfitter ph um let him know that's what you want to bring over there and he'll she should have the answer for you because i'm sure he's had to deal with that sort of thing many times say goodbye to ads and censorship with rso tv you get access to all of my videos ad free with no censorship so you get guns and shooting and rifle reviews and hunting scenes and you get 15% off at the new RSO TV store. So click the link in the description below or here above. Sign up. We'd love to have you. Okay, this is Dan. Oh, goody, another Patreon. Dan from Patreon asks, I have been wondering about rifle barrels. Well, you're not the only one, Dan. <laughs> Does it make a difference if they are button rifled or hammer forged? Do you have a preference? And if so, why? Well, you know, it can make a difference. Rifle barrels um, can be manufactured with cut rifling, where they literally cut it with a sharp carbide blade. Or you can button rifle it. And by that, it's usually you push a button through it with so much force that you iron in the rifling grooves, if you can believe that. And then the hammer forging is an interesting one because you literally pound a billet of steel around a mandrel that has the reverse rifling on it. So there's no cutting involved. That one is pretty popular with most modern firearms because it's so consistent and there's no cutting involved and it's fast. Big machine that does it, this hammer machine. And I've watched it um, making some Model 70 Winchesters, and they had a billet, big, thick steel billet with a hole drilled in it. This is another nice thing. You can drill a really straight hole on a short piece. If you get a full-length barrel and drill that hole, it's kind of a challenge to drill a straight hole. And once you've got the hole drilled, then you have to cut the grooves in it. So with this short little billet, a little easier to get a nice straight hole, then you slide the mandrel in there. Now, the mandrel would be like a cleaning rod with rifling on it. And you slide that in, and it's probably 24 inches, 26 inches long, whatever length barrel you're going to be making. Then you stick the, that into the billet, 
put it in this machine that has all these hammers on it, turn it on, and it starts pounding. And oh my gosh, plug your ears because they are going to pound that steel into a skinny little rifle barrel, 24 inches long, instead of a 12-inch billet. It's crazy. But when it comes out, you've hammered that steel around the reverse rifling on that mandrel. Then you pull the mandrel out. There shouldn't be any tears or rips of any kind from any kind of machining. There's no cutting involved. So it can make for a darn smooth barrel and really quite accurate if everything is done right. And that's why the mass marketers here are just building out one rifle after another with this hammer forging system. Now, the cut rifling is still done by many, and the people who perfect the art of cut rifling can really make some accurate barrels. And they have been known for extreme accuracy for a long time. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that I cannot predict which ones are going to be more accurate. They both can be. I just think it's a little easier to make an accurate one by that hammer forging. Now, the button rifling or the brooch, and I sometimes get those confused. I think they're about the same thing, but they're pushing that button through there to iron it in. The brooch might have some cutting edges on it, and they do it all in one pull. But the button one where they press it in, the the challenges there are stresses. You can imagine the steel getting squeezed or forced into a new shape. The kind of force that's required, you might end up with some different stress levels throughout that barrel, and that can affect the accuracy. And of course, there's going to be some spring back, I would imagine, from doing that. So if you squeeze it out yay far and then it bounces back about yay far they have to factor all that stuff in and understand it and know their steels and how that particular type of steel is going to respond etc etc so a lot of times i think with the button rifling they end up doing some cryogenic treatment afterward to relieve the stresses so something to think about but in general any barrel maker with a decent reputation is putting out some really precise and accurate barrels. In today's market, you just can't afford to put out a schlocky barrel. No one's going to stand for it. The factory rifles are so good now. You can buy these three, four, five hundred $500 rifles that shoot MOA right out of the box with factory ammunition. And 30 years ago, you had to spend a lot of time working on a barrel to get it to shoot that well. So I think that hammer forging is really pretty impressive. But if you want bench rest accuracy, you might go to a cut barrel maybe even a button rifled one. There'll be someone out there who's a famous barrel maker who has his technique down just right, who can really produce some fine barrels. So you might want to look into those for any kind of real precision shooting. All right, here is one from Anonymous again. I've read opinions online that the 338 isn't really a good step up in caliber from the 30-06. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, we're going to specify which 338 we're talking about here. I'm going to assume you mean the 338 Winchester Magnum because that's what most people are familiar with. It's been around since 1956 or 8. Um, the new ones are the 338 Remington Ultra Magnum, the 338 Lapua, 338 Federal, and the 338 RPM from Weatherby. That's the newest one that just came out. So the 338 Winchester Magnum is sort of the standard in 338s. And that one is uh, sort of like the 300 Win Mag. It's a little bit shorter, but it's the same case. That's the belted Magnum case from H&H, the 375. Straightened out the walls, pushed it back a little bit to make it a 30-06 length case. 
So it fits in standard actions and push the, the shoulder forward quite a bit on it. So it has a pretty short neck, et cetera, et cetera. So the uh, 338 Wind Mag has been the standard since the 50s, and it is considered to be just about the optimum elk cartridge out there. Real good for moose. A lot of Alaskans like it for bear as well. And it's pretty successful in Africa. Is it too small of a step up if you already have a 30-06? All right, two things to consider. First of all, is the caliber size. 308-inch diameter bullet, 338-inch diameter bullet. Not a huge difference, but a difference. So you're going to be throwing 250 grain bullets at the top end out of that 338, possibly 300. There are a few 300 grain bullets out there. And of course, they can make anything in between 275 or 280 grain, whatever. But generally, they top out at 250. Sometimes you'll get up to that 300. In the 30-06, your top end's probably going to be a 220 grain bullet. Um, there are some 250 grain bullets out there in 30 caliber that would fit, but I don't think they would stabilize in your average 30-06. The twist isn't fast enough, nor is there enough horsepower, and that takes us to number two, which is the powder capacity. 30-06, and you know that's your standard 30-06 case, holds about 58, 60 grains of powder pushing those 180 grain bullets and you're going to end up with around 2,800 feet per second or so, maybe 29. And that 338 is going to be going around the same with the 250 grain bullet. So you've got more mass in your bullet means you're going to have more energy in that bullet. Uh, your trajectories are going to be roughly the same. The advantage then is in your punch. And I think that's why most people want to roll with that 338. They're looking for something bigger that hits harder for the bigger animals. I don't know that it's absolutely necessary to hit harder if you put the right bullet in the right place, as we've discussed over and over and over again here. It does the job, but there are a lot of folks who just feel much more comfortable using a larger bullet, larger diameter, heavier weight, more penetration, all those things. So is that difference from, let's say, a top-end 220-grain bullet in the 30-ounce 6 to a 250-grain bullet in the... Uh, 338, yeah, there's considerable improvement in your energies and probably your trajectory. That 220 grain in a 30 out six is, is kind of a, a drop, a big time drop pretty quickly. Most people aren't shooting that for long range. They want the maximum energy from the muzzle out to 100 yards, perhaps. Uh, whereas with a 338, you're going to extend that a little bit more and you're going to have more energy up close too. So that I think is what people would look for for the the rare but deadly charging grizzly, for instance. I think it's worth stepping up. Now, if you really want to make the big step up, you're going to probably go to a 35 or 37 caliber. In 37, you're talking 375 H nature, 375 Ruger, perhaps. In the 35s, you could just go from the 30 out six to the 35 Whalen, which is the 30 out six case, necked up to 35. And a lot of folks like that. They claim that thing performs all out of proportion to its size. So you might want to look into that as a step up, staying with that 30 out six sized case. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's worth it. If you're shooting a 30 out 6 and you want to step up, 338 is not a huge step up, but I think it's worth the step. All right, good luck. And this is Daniel's question. Why do you think 30 calibers aren't as popular anymore? Aha, a couple of assumptions here. Are they really not as popular? <laughs> and uh, 
Well, I guess the other assumption is you're assuming I know something. <laughs> I would have to agree with you. I really don't hear that much about the 30s compared to the 6.5s and the 7s now. They do seem to be taking over. And I think the reason is the long-range shooting. And laser rangefinders. Once laser rangefinders came in around 1999, shooters started to figure out, you know what? If I know the precise distance to my target and I know the ballistics of my load and I know the drops of my bullet, I know just where to hold to put it in there at all these different distances. Really, the only concern then is the wind deflection. And I've got to really, really practice and study to understand and work with that. So if I can put the bullet right where it needs to be at long ranges using that stuff, what's my next concern? Probably cost and recoil. And what happened at the same time was that it was less about hunting and more about shooting, targets, steel, clanking steel. That became really popular with that laser rangefinder. And then here comes the 6.5 Creedmoor designed specifically for that. Just go out inexpensive, light round, hardly any recoil, shoots a long way because of these long high BC bullets, really helps you fight that wind deflection. And it just became so much fun that everybody started shooting those six fives and leaving the 300 wind mags in the closet. Why go out and beat yourself up with a big hard kicking rifle when the little one will get there and make the steel go clang? And that's really all you're out there for is to hit your target. Oh, yeah. So I think that started the trend away from the big 300s. Now, when you roll that into hunting, I think a lot of folks discovered that putting the right bullet in the right place, once again, we always harp on it, was doing the job. And I have young friends who hunt elk with 6.5 Creedmoors, which a lot of old guys out of the 20th century think is kind of silly because it's not effective enough. Yet he is taking elk just as effectively as a lot of folks I know who are shooting 338s and different 300 Magnums. So I can understand why these young guys who train with those light rifles and light bullets and are so effective with their precision shooting find out that they drop deer and even elk pretty effectively so why mess around with a hard kicking 300 that is i think why the 300s are not quite as popular anymore now this long range shooting is getting extended farther and farther i mean i know guys who don't even hunt. They just love to shoot steel plates at crazy distances. That's the excitement for them. They're going out to 2,000 yards pretty regularly. And to do that, 6.5 Creedmoor is not going to cut the mustard. There's where you might want a 300. But turns out that they're going with the 7 millimeters because you get the, a long high BC bullet and it does about the same thing with less recoil. So they took one step back up to the 300s, but not all the way up. And of course, there are plenty of people who do shoot the big 30s at that long range stuff, just because you can get a really high BC bullet, but you've got to push it fast. And that means a lot of powder. That means recoil. So if you can build yourself a heavy rifle, say 15 pounds, maybe even a little heavier, all you're going to do is take it out of the vehicle, plop down on, on the mat and start shooting at long range. It's not like the weight's going to be any kind of a challenge for you to carry around. So yeah, why not go with a big 30? And some guys, of course, will even go to the 338s and then you, you can go up from there and get some really crazy stuff. Most of that is military, but you know how 
folks are, if they find out that the military has a new sexy cartridge that'll shoot two miles or something, they got to try it. <laughs> so they'll put their steel out there at a distance where you can't even see it and launch them and they just have a blast. So pretty expensive though. It takes a lot of powder, takes a big heavy bullet. There's just a lot of material involved. But if you want to do something wild and crazy and different, 30 and, and bigger is the way to go. But overall, the, the 30s are not as popular because folks have figured out that they can do what they need to do, both in shooting targets out to about 1,000 yards and hunting game out to about 400 yards with the lighter cartridges. So why not? Less recoil. And that looks like the end of the questions for today. So I want to thank everyone once again for sending in those questions, especially thanking our Patreons for supporting us. And we're always happy to answer your questions. You will get those answered well before I get to doing them on the podcast here. I will write you right back and give you the answers well researched. So that is the show for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Hunt honest and shoot straight. where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.